0: Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast, produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. The Asset tells the story of Donald Trump and Russia. It's about the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of the President of the United States.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post.
0: Washington Post,
1: this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie
0: McCrumman from the Washington Post.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 14th. Today, Tan France from Queer Eye on growing up brown, Muslim, and gay in England, and
2: how DJ Khaled gamed the billboard charts. That is my main claim to fame. I have uh, I've popularized something called the French tuck. You'll often find me sporting a French tuck. Yeah, he's casual. I he's like cool. The partial tuck. French tuck. Yeah, it looks damn good. You see how I've tucked in mine? It's called a French tuck, which is where you tuck the very front of your shirt into your pants. How often do people ask you about that, or how how often is that brought up? As it's the thing. Right, it's brought up about at least. 50, 60 times a day. No (laughs) joke. Whether it be via DM or in real life, yeah. I promise that this will be the last time that we talk about the French tag in the Caribbean. I'm proud. At least (laughs) least people know me for something is very nice. (laughs) And it's a great styling tip. My name is Tan France. I am on a show called Queer Eye on Netflix. And I'm the author of a book called Naturally Tan.
1: Queer Eye is a reboot of the original Bravo series that aired in the early 2000s, Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. The new Netflix version features five queer experts who help what they call a hero undergo a makeover. Tan France is the one who guides them on fashion, and that's something that he's been interested in since he was a kid. He got his first sewing machine as a teenager, and he was in the clothing business before he was tapped for Queer Eye. So... I want to start by talking about your particular role on Queer Eye, because one thing that I've noticed is that when it comes to delivering some of the hardest truths, usually that goes to you, yes. that you're the one saying things that are kind, but also critical of people's appearance or mm-hmm. letting them know the honest truth about how they're presenting themselves yeah. to the world. Yeah. How do you navigate doing that in a way that is kind, but but
2: is still honest. I would like to make a correction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I don't think I'm criticizing what people wear. I'm trying to offer suggestions that might truly help them feel better about themselves. I do see fashion as being very important when it comes to how you view yourself and how you feel about yourself. And so that's why I think it's super important for me to be able to talk about The way somebody presents to the world, it's easier for me, I think, to have those hard conversations than with the other boys because I think Americans are encouraged to be nice, even if they don't think those nice thoughts. They're encouraged to say nice things, and British people are a lot more aggressive in our uh, conversation. And so, if we have something to say, we will usually go ahead and say it. But we will find a polite way to say it. There are many hard conversations that we have to have with our heroes throughout the course of the week that we spend with them. And the toughest parts always come down to me because I'm very comfortable having those conversations. And quite honestly, I think Americans afford me honesty like they don't, the Americans. A Brit can say something <laughs> like, to an American. He's British. He's yeah. Gonna be... yeah, yeah, yeah. And they think, oh, well, he's at least sweet. But they don't realize that it's just my accent that they're falling for. But yeah, I, I, I've always found, uh, I think I was raised in a community that encourages people to be very honest. My family is very, very honest. My The people in my community are very honest. I think a lot of the time you'll find in Asian or South Asian communities, People are sometimes painfully honest. So I think mm. I, I, I found a way to balance the two between the West and the East.
1: Well, that's one thing that I thought was really interesting about your book, is that you talk about a lot of these moments where people in your family are being honest with you or, or giving you constructive criticism, and also that other people in your life were giving you not constructive, very mean mm-hmm. criticism, making mm-hmm. mean comments about mm-hmm. you. But you talk about the way that that has also affected how you present yourself to the world.
2: Yeah, Uh, there were a couple of parts of the book, chapters of the book, which were really hard to write, that one in particular, because there's been so many years, decades uh, since that happened, and I haven't really thought about it that much.
1: For context, Tan is British Pakistani and Muslim, and he grew up in Northern England. So that made him and his family different from other people around them
2: writing the book, it really just forced you to revisit a lot of things that happened in your childhood. And that was one of them as a kid. I wouldn't ever say I was bullied at the time. If you would ask me if I was being bullied, the answer was absolutely no. No, don't be silly. I'm not being bullied. Mm -hmm. But uh, I guess it was a form of bullying, knowing that I had to practically run to school and run back to make sure that nobody beat me up. That is a form of bullying. That's
1: what I found So crazy that your family didn't, that they were worried whenever you would go to the corner store because they thought that you would be bullied or beat up or were honestly like the victim of a hate crime.
2: Yeah, and again, we were also always so matter of fact about it. There were probably another eight to ten South Asian families in our community, and everyone did the same. So I w- we were all just so matter of fact about it. We didn't, we didn't know any different. And so that's why I say I, I would never class myself as being bullied, or I didn't feel like I was being, I wasn't being assaulted because everybody, everybody goes through that. Like everybody has to run home. It's just not safe. And now as I'm older, the thought of somebody who's related to me or anybody who's of color who has to run home just. So they avoid being beaten because of their colour is ludicrous. Like it's insane to me and and that thought pains me. And so having that kind of honesty from my community was very, very difficult. That wasn't constructive. Whereas in my home, you're a person of colour also. I don't know if this is... I ask this because... I find this with almost every one of my friends of color. Our parents or our aunts and uncles, our cousins, are a lot more forthright with mm-hmm. opinions. They will mm-hmm. tell you if you put on weight. They don't tell you if you do You 100%. I don't, it, it seems to be a very non-Caucasian thing. And I'm sure that happens in Caucasian households also. But it, they don't seem as comfortable with that kind of honesty, that kind of mean criticism, quite honestly. But we grow up with that in our communities. I, well, and I think a lot of it is because
1: there is a concern that... This kid needs to be prepared if they're going out, if they're going to go out into the world, into a largely white yes. society. Yes. then we need to make sure that they know everything about how they need to present themselves, yes. how they can come off as their their best, cleanest, fanciest yes. self, because, because we, we are, are more gonna,
2: vulnerable. And we don't want to give them another reason to mm-hmm. uh, feel like we're different. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, that was something that I experienced my whole life.
1: One of the things that I've noticed about many of the interviews that have been done with you is that there is a tendency to focus on the ways that being gay has challenged you mm-hmm. over the course of your life and less of a focus on talking about the ways that being brown mm-hmm, has yes. challenged you over the Believe course of your life. Why do, why do you think that that, that that is that people are more likely to assume that the central obstacles in your life are because of your sexuality versus because of of your race and and because you're Muslim? Um, I don't,
2: uh, I can't say for sure why, why they are do, doing that. I have assumptions. I don't think people want to hear that story. I don't think that, I think that people assume at that point that you're playing the race card, bring that violin out. Yes, we know that your brown heritage is so hard and oh my gosh, it must be so difficult for you. I think they're sick of those stories. The funny thing is, I don't think there are enough of those stories. And also, gay issues or LGBTQ issues are such a focus right now, and rightly so. But that shouldn't negate any other concerns, any other issues that there might be. And and one of them is the fact that people aren't as willing to hear stories of people of colour.
1: One of the things that we noticed, actually, as we were reading the book, so Lena, one of our producers, she had the advanced paperback copy of the book, and then I had the final hardcover copy. And there was a chapter that was added yeah, there about September 11th. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that chapter and why you decided you wanted to put it in.
2: That chapter, I wanted to—I had those feelings— from the very day I decided I was going to do the book. It took some convincing to do the book, to write the book. And that was the chapter that made me think I shouldn't write a book. Because if I wanted to be honest, that needed to be in it. But if I'm honest, then there may be many, many people in the US that might really hate me and come for me because of my comments and my thoughts about this. And so I decided I wasn't going to add it into the book. And then the book closed. And then I called my publishers frantically saying, I, I I, can't not add this chapter. I will feel like I'm doing my people a disservice. I have the luxury, the privilege of a, a platform like not many people in my community. If I don't talk about this, I'd be disappointed in myself. And so this chapter is called 9-11. And the reason why it was so hard to talk about is because 9-11 in general is not something that my people are encouraged to talk about. We apparently have no right to talk about it, and I hear that from people today on social. It's a conversation I've wanted to have for a very long time uh, for this reason. Never forget. This term I see regularly. Every time I come to back to America, it's uh, plastered all over airports. I see it on bus stops in New York, and I understand we should never forget the people that lost their lives when those two buildings came down. However, I think people don't want to know the other side, which is every time we never forget, we're reminding people that to see my people as one thing, as a threat, as terrorists, and we can say all we want that, no, that's not the case. I know you you would have heard this many times, but I'm going to say it just so I, I've said it. When a white person commits a crime or uh, commits act of terrorism, it's not called terrorism. When a brown person who, maybe even not an active Muslim, a practicing Muslim, was raised in the Muslim faith at some point and then commits a crime, that person's a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And so all, all these reports that we've seen ever since, every time we see Never Forget, That's conditioning people to never forget that every Muslim you see is a potential threat. Mm -hmm. When I go to the airport, I'm stopped a thousand times over, 24 times, quite honestly. Detained 24 times while it's coming into the US. You've been detained 24 24 times
1: times in the airport? Mm
2: -hmm, While it's coming into the US. And that's not within the last seven or eight years. That was all between the age of 17 and 24. Wow. Um, Does it still happen to you? It hasn't happened since the show Ed, which I'm grateful for but I was stopped for a week I I fly almost every day Mm -hmm. and I was stopped five days in a row uh, and I went through extra screening additional screening they would hold me for a good half an hour 45 minutes whilst they went through my bags thoroughly asked me for my passport instead of my ID that everybody else gets to use and I would say I don't need my passport I'm not travelling internationally yes we need to see your passport and that continued until I talked about it on my social media and said enough is enough and it's not because I'm now famous that I I don't expect to go through this. I'm one of the very few who is able to speak on this. And it felt like that was the point of that chapter was sort of making it clear
1: that we also need to remember that for Muslims in America, in many ways, life has gotten
2: worse since September 11th. Not just the U.S., in the U.K. also. Actually, mm-hmm. I think we're affected more in the U.K. individually, like on a, a real level, a community level, where people do sometimes mostly think that we are a threat. We are, the abuse that we suffered uh, immediately after and continue to suffer is way worse than I ever experienced as a kid. And I mentioned this in the book. Before 9-11, I was worried that somebody would attack me for being Pakistani. Uh, Or just brown. After 9-11, the taunts changed. It wasn't that they would call me the disgusting P-word in the street. It was then terrorist, or raghead, or any of those other disgusting terms that they would throw at us. So it was a different kind of worry. They weren't worried about us because we were brown and different. They were worried because they, we, they truly thought that we would attack them. And they didn't understand that we were more scared than anybody. Not only now were we worried that there could be uh, an act of terrorism committed on the countries that we're in, the cities that we're in, and we would also suffer just as any other Caucasian person would. But we were also attacked by people in our own communities who now saw us as terrorists. What is the thing that people don't ever ask you about that you wish that you were asked about? Oh, it's not a specific question. It's all, it's the beauty of my culture and my community. I think it's always positioned where, well, you, you, you have to represent this community, or you represent this community, you're Pakistani. It's always tied in with how do you represent in this industry and it's combating issues as opposed to talk to me about how beautiful your upbringing was like tell me all the best things of your culture i had only started to wonder this within the last day or so if i should stop mentioning at this point the word representation and just be and maybe just by being that's the best way of representing and just showing all the beauty of my culture and everything i represent my religion my community and my people now for the last question. Yeah. So because this is The Washington Post. Yes. I
1: have to ask you a double whammy political question. Uh-oh. First of all, what is your fashion advice for President Trump?
2: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: And what is your fashion advice for those who are running for president in 2020, the Democratic candidates?
2: Okay, I won't make this specific to uh, just the candidates who are running. I will say this in general. No matter what job you're going for, You want to feel the very best you can feel in what you're wearing so that you feel your very best and you're putting your best foot forward and you feel like the clothes that you are wearing represent who you are, but also that people take you seriously. When you are dressed appropriately for the job that you have, people respect you and will take you more seriously than if you are dressed as trash when you are trying to be taken seriously. If you had to give one
1: specific piece of advice for President Trump to feel the best that he can feel
2: and represent the country the way that you think he should, what could he fix? Uh, It's not a direct fix, but maybe look at what Obama did as far as his wardrobe goes. Uh, Went and take notes from him. He was very much respected and I respect him very much and I respect his wardrobe choices. So maybe this is like a tailoring issue. Tailoring issue.
1: (laughs) Tan France, thank you so much. You
2: are very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Tan France is a fashion expert on the Netflix show Queer Eye. His new book is called Naturally Tan.
0: Post Reports is sponsored by the Asset Podcast. Produced by the Center for American Progress Action Fund, District Productive, and Protect the Investigation. Listen to the story of the role of a hostile foreign government in the election of Donald Trump to President of the United States. Download and listen today.
1: And now, one more thing about a hit maker DJ Khaled. and the Billboard chart for top album.
0: So, DJ Khaled bundled his record with energy shots, sort of like those five-hour energies, but a, a different brand of them. So what that means is you could buy online five energy shots and you would get one free digital download of DJ Khaled's new album.
1: That's Travis Andrews.
0: I'm a pop culture reporter with the Washington Post.
1: And according to Travis, what DJ Khaled did is not unheard of.
0: This is something that people have done actually for a long time now in the digital age. I think it began around 2004 with Prince. He would give away albums at his concerts. You bought a ticket to the concert. You got an album. And ever since then, it's become more and more increasingly popular to quote unquote bundle your album with merchandise of all different sorts. Taylor Swift, back in 2012, actually bundled her album Red with Papa John's Pizza, 22 bucks. And you could get a one topping pizza and a copy of her album.
1: And for DJ Khaled, bundling energy shots with his album sales ended up working.
0: DJ Khaled sold more records in theory. But the reason was people were buying these energy drinks in bulk. And Billboard looked at that and said, well, this doesn't count because you were asking people to, say, buy 10 packs of energy drinks. And when they did that, they got 10 albums. And that all counts towards, you know, supposedly towards Billboard's rankings. What they did not like is that Khaled bundled it with these energy shots and then the company Shop.com that he was going through – they tried to get people to buy them in bulk. They very specifically said, buy a whole bunch of these energy shots and we can get Khalid to number one. Essentially, he gamed the system and they said, no, that's not fair.
1: Now, after being close to the number one spot on Billboard's top 200 albums chart, Khalid's father of acid has slipped to number three. But Travis says that Billboard's rankings don't really matter to the public anymore. They only matter to industry insiders.
0: It's important to note that Billboard has an incredibly difficult kind of problem to solve. You know, for almost a century, they've been tracking popularity of music, and they've been doing it by how many physical CDs or records were sold, how many times a song is played on the radio, and that was always very easy to track. Obviously, in today's world, that's completely different. The way we listen to music is different. The way music is disseminated is different. And to say what is actually popular— you know, it's a really confusing time. The streaming has changed music tremendously. And this is just another example of how that's happening.
2: The best music, it's the-
1: Travis Andrews covers pop culture for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohamed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who composes original music for the show. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I am Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.